Section 32 of The South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The South Pole by Roald Edmondson. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 32, Volume 2, Chapter 15. The Eastern Sledge Journey, Part 3, by Lieutenant K. Priestrad. Tuesday, December 5. It looks as if our patience is to be given a really hard trial this time. Outside, the same state of things continues, and the barometer is going down. A mass of snow has fallen in the last twenty-four hours. The drift on the windward side of the tent is constantly growing. If it keeps on a little longer, it will be as high as the top of the tent. The sledges are completely snowed under, and so are the dogs. We had to haul them out one by one in the middle of the day. Most of them are now loose, as there is nothing exposed to the attacks of their teeth. It is now blowing a regular gale. The direction of the wind is about true east. Occasionally, squalls of hurricane-like violence occur. Fortunately, the big snowdrift keeps us comfortable, and we are under the lee of a hill. Otherwise, it would look badly for our tent. Hitherto it has held well, but it is beginning to be rather damp inside. The temperature remains very high plus 27.2 degrees Fahrenheit at noon today, and the mass of snow pressing against the tent causes the formation of rime. In order to while away the time to some extent under depressing circumstances like these, I put into my diary on leaving Framheim a few loose leaves of a Russian grammar. Johansen solaced himself with a serial cut out of the Afton Post. As far as I remember, the title of it was The Red Rose and the White, Unfortunately, the story of the two roses was very soon finished, but Johansen had a good remedy for that. He simply began it over again. My reading had the advantage of being incomparably stiffer. Russian verbs are uncommonly difficult of digestion, and not to be swallowed in a hurry. For lack of mental nutriment, Stubberut, with great resignation, consoled himself with a pipe, but his enjoyment must have been somewhat diminished by the thought that his stock of tobacco was shrinking at an alarming rate. Every time he filled his pipe, I could see him cast longing looks in the direction of my pouch, which was still comparatively full. I could not help promising a fraternal sharing in case he should run short, and after that our friend puffed on with an easy mind. Although I look at it at least every half hour, the barometer will not go up. At 8 p.m. it was down to 27.30. If this means anything, it can only be that we shall have the pleasure of being imprisoned here another day. Some poor consolation is to be had in the thought of how lucky we were to reach the tent at the last moment the day before yesterday. A storm as lasting as this one would in all probability have been too much for us if we had not got in. Wednesday, December 6th. The third day of idleness has at last crept away after its predecessors. We have done with it. It has not brought any marked variation. The weather has been just as violent, until now, 8 p.m. The wind shows a slight tendency to moderate. It is, surely, time it did. Three days and nights should be enough for it. The heavy snowfall continues. Big wet flakes come dancing down through the opening in the drift in which the peak of the tent still manages to show itself. In the course of three days we have had more snowfall here than we had at Framheim in ten whole months. It will be interesting to compare our meteorological log with Lindstrom's. Probably he has had his share of the storm, and in that case it will have given him some exercise in snow-shoveling. 
The moisture is beginning to be rather troublesome now. Most of our wardrobe is wet through, and the sleeping bags will soon meet with the same fate. The snowdrift outside is now so high that it shuts out most of the daylight. We are in twilight. Tomorrow we shall be obliged to dig out the tent, whatever the weather is like, otherwise we shall be buried entirely, and run the additional risk of having the tent split by the weight of snow. I am afraid it will be a day's work to dig out the tent and the two sledges. We have only one little shovel to do it with. A slight rise of both barometer and thermometer tells us that at last we are on the eve of the change we have been longing for. Stubot is certain of fair weather tomorrow, he says. I am by no means so sure, and offer to bet pretty heavily that there will be no change. Two inches of Norwegian plug tobacco is the stake, and with a heartfelt desire that Jorgen may win, I await the morrow. Thursday, December 7. Early this morning I owned to having lost my bet, as the weather, so far as I could tell, was no longer of the same tempestuous character. But Stubert thought the contrary. "'It seems to me just as bad,' said he. He was right enough, as a matter of fact, for this did not prevent my persuading him to accept payment. Meanwhile we were obliged to make an attempt to dig out the tent, regardless of the weather. The situation was no longer endurable. We waited all the forenoon in the hope of an improvement, but as none came we set to work at twelve o'clock. Our implements showed some originality and diversity, a little spade, a biscuit tin, and a cooker. The drift did its best to undo our work as fast as we dug, but we managed to hold our own against it. Digging out the tent pegs gave most trouble. After six hours' hard work we got the tent set up a few yards to windward of its first position. The place where it had stood was now a well about seven feet deep. Unfortunately, there was no chance of immortalizing this scene of excavation. It would have been amusing enough to have it on the plate, but drifting snow is a serious obstacle to an amateur photographer, besides which my camera was on Stubert's sledge, buried at least four feet down. In the course of our digging we had had the misfortune to make two or three serious rents in the thin canvas of the tent, and the drift was not long in finding a way through these when the tent was up again. To conclude my day's work I had, therefore, a longish tailor's job, while the other two men were digging out a good feed for the dogs, who had been on half rations for the last two days. That night we went rather short of sleep. Vulcan, the oldest dog in Johansen's team, was chiefly to blame for this. In his old age Vulcan was afflicted with a bad digestion, for even Eskimo dogs may be liable to this infirmity, hardly as they generally are. The protected blizzard had given the old fellow a relapse, and he proclaimed this distressing fact by incessant howling. This kind of music was not calculated to lull us to sleep, and it was three or four in the morning before we could snatch a nap. During a pause I was just dropping off, when the sun showed faintly through the tent. This unwanted sight at once banished all further thoughts of sleep. The primus was lighted, a cup of chocolate swallowed, and out we went. Stubert and Johansen set to work at the hard task of digging out the sledges. They had to go down four feet to get hold of them. I dragged our wet clothes, sleeping bags, and so forth out of the tent, and hung them all up to dry. In the course of the morning observations were taken for determining the geographical longitude and latitude, as well as a few photographs, which will give some idea of what our camp looked like after the blizzard. Having made good the damage and put everything fairly in order, we hurried away to our peaks to secure some photographs while the light was favourable. This time we were able to achieve our object. Scott's Nunataks, as they were afterwards named, after Captain Scott, who first saw them, 
were now for the first time recorded by the camera. Before we left the summit, the Norwegian flag was planted there, a snow beacon erected and a report of our visit deposited in it. The weather would not keep clear. Before we were back at the camp there was a thick fog, and once more we had to thank the tracks of our ski for showing us the way. During the time we had been involuntarily detained at this spot, our store of provisions had decreased alarmingly. There was only a bare week's supply left, and in less than a week we should hardly be able to make home. Probably it would take more than a week, but in that case we had a depot at our Bay of Seals to fall back upon. In the immediate neighbourhood of our present position we could not reckon on being able to replenish our supply in the continued unfavourable state of the weather. We therefore made up our minds on the morning of December 9 to break off the journey and turn our faces homeward. For three days more we had to struggle with high wind and thick snow, but as things now were we had no choice but to keep going, and by the evening of the 11th we had dragged ourselves fifty geographical miles to the west. The weather cleared during the night, and at last, on December 12, we had a day of real sunshine. All our discomforts were forgotten. Everything went easily again. In the course of nine hours we covered twenty-six geographical miles that day, without any great strain on either dogs or men. At our midday rest we found ourselves abreast of the bay where, on the outward journey, we had laid down our depot of seal's flesh. I had intended to turn aside to the depot and replenish our supply of meat as a precaution, but Johansen suggested leaving out this detour and going straight on. We might thereby run the risk of having to go on short rations, but Johansen thought it a greater risk to cross the treacherous ground about the bay, and, after some deliberation, I saw he was right. It was better to go on while we were about it. From this time on we met with no difficulty, and rapidly drew near to our destination in regular daily marches of twenty geographical miles. After men and dogs had received their daily ration on the evening of the 15th, our sledge-cases were practically empty, but, according to our last position, we should not have more than twenty geographical miles more to Framheim. Saturday, December 16. We broke camp at the usual time, in overcast but perfectly clear weather, and began what was to be our last day's march on this trip. A dark water-sky hung over the barrier on the west and northwest, showing that there was open sea off the mouth of the Bay of Wales. We went on till ten-thirty, our course being true west, when we made out far to the northwest an ice-cape that was taken to be the extreme point on the western side of the bay. Immediately after we were on the edge of the barrier, the direction of which was here southwest and northeast. We altered our course and followed the edge at a proper distance until we saw a familiar iceberg that had broken off to the north of Framheim, but had been stopped by the sea ice from drifting out. With this excellent mark in view, the rest of the way was plain sailing. The sledge meter showed 19.5 geographical miles when in the afternoon we came in sight of our winter home. Quiet and peaceful it lay there, if possible more deeply covered in snow than when we had left it. At first we could see no sign of life, but soon the glasses discovered a lonely wanderer on his way from the house to the meteorological institute so Lindstrom was still alive and performing his duties. When we left, our friend had expressed his satisfaction at getting us out of the way, but I have a suspicion that he was quite as pleased to see us back again. I am not quite certain, though, that he did see us for the moment, as he was about as snow-blind as a man can be. Lindstrom was the last person we should have suspected of that malady. On our asking him how it came about, he seemed at first unwilling to give any explanation, 
but by degrees it came out that the misfortune had happened a couple of days before, when he had gone out after seals. His team, composed of nothing but puppies, had run away and pulled up at a big hummock out by the western cape, ten miles from the station. But Lindström, who is a determined man, would not give up before he had caught the runaways, and this was too much for his eyes, as he had no goggles with him. "'When I got home, I couldn't see what the time was,' he said, "'but it must have been somewhere about six in the morning.' When we'd made him put on plenty of red-eye ointment and supplied him with a proper pair of goggles, he was soon cured. Farmheim had had the same protected storms with heavy snowfall. On several mornings the master of the house had had to dig his way out through the snowball outside the door. But during the last three fine days he had managed to clear a passage, not only to the door, but to the window as well. Daylight came down into the room through a well nine feet deep. This had been a tremendous piece of work. But, as already hinted, nothing can stop Lindström when he makes up his mind. His stock of seal's flesh was down to a minimum. The little there was vanished on the appearance of our ravenous dogs. We ourselves were in no such straits. Sweets were the only things in special demand. We stayed at home one day. After bringing up two loads of seal's flesh, filling our empty provision cases, carrying out a number of small repairs, and checking our watches, we were again on the road on Monday the 18th. We were not very loath to leave the house. Indoor existence had become rather uncomfortable on account of constant dripping from the ceiling. In the course of the winter a quantity of ice had formed in the loft. As the kitchen fire was always going after our return, the temperature became high enough to melt the ice, and the water streamed down. Lindström was annoyed and undertook to put a stop to it. He disappeared into the loft and sent down a hail of ice, bottle straw, broken cases, and other treasures through the trapdoor. We fled before the storm and drove away. This time we had to carry out our instructions as to the exploration of the long eastern arm of the Bay of Wales. During the autumn several Sunday excursions had been made along this remarkable formation, but although some of these ski runs had extended as far as twelve miles in one direction, there was no sign of the hummocks coming to an end. These great disturbances of the ice mass must have a cause, and the only conceivable one was that the subjacent land had brought about this disruption of the surface. For immediately to the south there was undoubtedly land, as there the surface rose somewhat rapidly to a height of one thousand feet, but it was covered with snow. There was a possibility that the rock might project among the evidences of heavy pressure at the foot of this slope, and with this possibility in view we made a five days trip following the great fissure, or bay, as we generally called it, right up to its head, twenty-three geographical miles to the east of our winter quarters. Although we came across no bare rock, and in that respect the journey was a disappointment, it was nevertheless very interesting to observe the effects of the mighty forces that had here been at work, the disruption of the solid ice sheet by the still more solid rock. The day before Christmas Eve we were back at Framheim. Lindström had made good use of his time in our absence, the ice had disappeared from the loft, and therewith the rain from the ceiling. New linoleum had been laid down over half the floor, and marks of the paintbrush were visible on the ceiling. These efforts had possibly been made with an eye to the approaching festival, but in other respects we abstained from any attempt at keeping Christmas. It did not agree with the time of year. Constant blazing sunshine all through the twenty-four hours could not be reconciled with a northerner's idea of Christmas and for that reason we had kept the festival six months before. Christmas Eve fell on a Sunday, and it passed just like any ordinary Sunday. Perhaps the only difference was that we used a razor that day, instead of the usual beard clipper. 
on Christmas Day we took a holiday, and Lindström prepared a banquet of squire girls. Despise this dish as one may, it tasted undeniably of bird. The numerous snow-houses were now in a sad way. Under the weight of the constantly increasing mass, the roofs of most of the rooms were pressed so far in that there was just enough space to crawl on hands and knees. In the crystal palace and the clothing store we kept all our skin clothing, besides a good deal of outfit, which it was intended to take on board the Fram when she and the southern party arrived. If the sinking continued, it would be a long business digging these things out again, and in order to have everything ready, we made up our minds to devote a few days to this work at once. We hauled the snow up from these two rooms through a well twelve feet deep by means of tackles. It was a long job, but when we had finished, this part of the labyrinth was as good as ever. We had no time to deal with the vapour bath or the carpenter's shop just then. There still remained the survey of the southwestern corner of the Bay of Wales and its surroundings. On an eight-day sledge journey, starting at the new year, we arranged about this district, where we were surprised to find the solid barrier divided into small islands, separated by comparatively broad sounds. These isolated masses of ice could not possibly be afloat, although the depth in one or two places, where we had a chance of making soundings, proved to be as much as two hundred fathoms. The only rational explanation we could think of was that there must be a group of low-lying islands here, or, in any case, shoals. These ice islands, if one may call them so, had a height of ninety feet, and sloped evenly down to the water on the greater part of their circumference. One of the sounds that penetrated into the barrier a short distance inside the western cape of the bay continued southwards and gradually narrowed to a mere fissure. We followed this until it lost itself, thirty geographical miles within the barrier. The last day of this trip, Thursday, January 11, will always be fixed in our memory. It was destined to bring us experiences of the kind that are never forgotten. Our start in the morning was made at exactly the same time and in exactly the same way as so many times before. We felt pretty certain of reaching Framheim in the course of the day, but that prospect was for the moment of minor importance. In the existing state of the weather, our tent offered us as comfortable quarters as our snowed-up winter home. What made us look forward to our return with some excitement was the possibility of seeing the Fram again, and this thought was no doubt in the minds of all of us that January morning, though we did not say much about it. After two hours' march we caught sight of West Cape, at the entrance to the bay, in our line of route, and a little later we saw a black strip of sea far out on the horizon. As usual, a number of bergs of all sizes were floating on this strip, in every variety of shade from white to dark grey as the light fell on them. One particular lump appeared to us so dark that it could hardly be made of ice, but we'd been taken in too many times to make any remark about it. As the dogs now had a mark to go by, Johansen was driving in front without my help. I went by the side of Stubberet's sledge. The man at my side kept staring out to sea without uttering a word. On my asking him what in the world he was looking at, he replied, I could almost swear it was a ship, but of course it's only a wretched iceberg. We were just agreed upon this when suddenly Johansen stopped short and began a hurried search for his long glass. Are you going to look at the Fram? I asked ironically. Yes, I am he said, and while he turned the telescope upon the doubtful object far out in Ross Sea, we two stood waiting for a few endless seconds. "'It's the Fram, sure enough, as large as life,' was the welcome announcement that broke our suspense. 
I glanced at Stubberud and saw his face expanding into its most amiable smile. Though I had not much doubt of the correctness of Johansen's statement, I borrowed his glass, and a fraction of a second was enough to convince me. That ship was easily recognized. She was our own old Fram safely back again. We had still fourteen long miles to Framheim and an obstinate wind right in our faces, but that part of the way was covered in a remarkably short time. On arriving at home at two in the afternoon, we had some expectation of finding a crowd of people in front of the house, but there was not a living soul to be seen. Even Lindström remained concealed, though as a rule he was always about when anyone arrived. Thinking that perhaps our friend had had a relapse of snow-blindness, I went in to announce our return. Lindström was standing before his range in the best of health when I entered the kitchen. "'The Fram's come!' he shouted, before I had shut the door. "'Tell me something I don't know,' said I, "'and be so kind as to give me a cup of water with a little syrup in it, if you can.' I thought somehow that the cook had a sly grin on his face when he brought what I asked for, but with the thirst I had after the stiff march I gave a great part of my attention to the drink. I had consumed the best part of a quart when Lindström went off to his bunk and asked if I could guess what he had hidden there. There was no time to guess anything before the blankets were thrown onto the floor, and after them bounded a bearded ruffian, clad in a jersey and a pair of overalls of indeterminable age and colour. "'Hello,' said the ruffian, and the voice was that of Lieutenant Gjertsen. Lindström was shaking with laughter while I stood open-mouthed before this apparition. I had been given a good surprise. We agreed to treat Johansen and Stubberud in the same way, and as soon as they were heard outside, Gjertsen hid himself again among the blankets. But Stubberud had smelled a rat in some way or other. "'There are more than two in this room,' he said, as soon as he came in. It was no surprise to him to find a man from the Fram in Lindström's bunk. When we heard that the visitor had been under our roof for a whole day, we assumed that in the course of that time he had heard all about our own concerns from Lindström. We were therefore not inclined to talk about ourselves. We wanted news from without, and Gjertsen was more than ready to give us them. The Fram had arrived two days before, all well. After lying at the ice edge for a day and a night, keeping a constant lookout for the natives, Gjertsen had grown so curious to know how things were at Framheim that he had asked Captain Nielsen for shore leave. The careful skipper had hesitated a while before giving permission. It was a long way up to the house, and the sea-ice was scored with lanes, some of them fairly wide. Finally, Gjertsen had his way, and he left the ship, taking a single flag with him. He found it rather difficult to recognize his surroundings, to begin with. One ice-cape was very like another, and ugly ideas of carvings suggested themselves, until at last he caught sight of Cape Man's head, and then he knew that the foundations of Framheim had not given way. Cheered by this knowledge, he made his way towards Mount Nelson, but, on arriving at the top of this ridge, from which there was a view over Framheim, the eager explorer felt his heart sink. Where our new house had made such a brave show a year before on the surface of the barrier, there was now no house at all to be seen. All that met the eyes of the visitor was a sombre pile of ruins. But his anxiety quickly vanished when a man emerged from the confusion. The man was Lindström, and the supposed ruin was the most ingenious of all winter quarters. Lindström was ignorant of the Fram's arrival, and the face he showed on seeing Gjertsen must have been worth some money to look at. When our first curiosity was satisfied, our thoughts turned to our comrades on board the Fram. We snatched some food and then went down to the sea-ice, making our way across the little bay due north of the house. Our well-trained team were not long in getting there, 
but we had some trouble with them in crossing the cracks in the ice, as some of the dogs, especially the puppies, had a terror of water. The Fram was cruising some way out, but when we came near enough for them to see us, they made all haste to come in to the ice-foot. Yes, there lay our good little ship, as trim as when we'd last seen her. The long voyage round the world had left no mark on her strong hull. Along the bulwarks appeared a row of smiling faces, which we were able to recognize, in spite of the big beards that half concealed many of them. While clean-shaven chins had been the fashion at Framheim, almost every man on board appeared with a flowing beard. As we came over the gangway, questions began to hail upon us. I had to ask for a moment's grace to give the captain and crew a hearty shake of the hand, and then I collected them all about me and gave a short account of the most important events of the past year. When this was done, Captain Nielsen pulled me into the chart-house, where we had a talk that lasted till about four the next morning. To both of us, certainly one of the most interesting we have ever had. On Nielsen's asking about the prospects of the southern party, I ventured to assure him that in all probability we should have our chief and his companions back in a few days with a pole in their pockets. Our letters from home brought nothing but good news. What interested us most in the newspapers was, of course, the account of how the expedition's change of route had been received. At 8 a.m. we left the Fram and returned home. For the next few days we were occupied with the work of surveying and charting, which went comparatively quickly in the favourable weather. When we returned after our day's work on the afternoon of the 17th, we found Lieutenant Geertsen back at the hut. He asked us if we could guess the news, and as we had no answer ready, he told us that the ship of the Japanese expedition had arrived. We hurriedly got out the cinematograph apparatus and the camera, and went off as fast as the dogs could go, since Geertsen thought this visit would not be of long duration. When we caught sight of the Fram, she had her flag up, and just beyond the nearest cape lay the Kainan Maru, with the ensign of the rising sun at the peak. Banzai! We had come in time! Although it was rather late in the evening, Nielsen and I decided to pay her a visit, and if possible to see the leader of the expedition. We were received at the gangway by a young, smiling fellow, who beamed still more when I produced the only Japanese word I knew. Oheo! Good day! There the conversation came to a full stop, but soon a number of the inquisitive sons of Nippon came up, and some of them understood a little English. We did not get very far, however. We found out that the Kainan Maru had been on a cruise in the direction of King Edward Seventh land, but we could not ascertain whether any landing had been attempted or not. As the leader of the expedition and the captain of the ship had turned in, we did not want to disturb them by prolonging our visit, but we did not escape before the genial first officer had offered us a glass of wine and a cigar in the chart-house. With an invitation to come again next day, and permission to take some photographs, we returned to the Fram. But nothing came of the projected second visit to our Japanese friends. Both ships put out to sea in a gale that sprang up during the night, and before we had another opportunity of going on board the Kainan Maru, the southern party had returned. The days immediately preceding the departure of the expedition for the north fell about the middle of the short Antarctic summer, just at the time when the comparatively rich animal life of the Bay of Wales shows itself at its best. The name of the Bay of Wales is due to Shackleton, and is appropriate enough, for from the time of the break-up of the sea-ice this huge inlet in the barrier forms a favourite playground for whales, of which we often saw schools of as many as fifty disporting themselves for hours together. We had no means of disturbing their peaceful sport, although the sight of all these monsters, each worth a small fortune, was well calculated to make our fingers itch. 
it was the wailing demon that possessed us. For one who has no special knowledge of the industry, it is difficult to form an adequate opinion as to whether this part of Antarctica is capable of ever becoming a field for a whaling enterprise. In any case, it will probably be a long time before such a thing happens. In the first place, the distance to the nearest inhabited country is very great, over two thousand geographical miles, and, in the second, there is a serious obstruction on this route in the shape of the belt of pack-ice, which, narrow and loose as it may be at times, will always necessitate the employment of timber-built vessels for the work of transport. The conditions prevailing in the Bay of Wales must presumably offer a decisive obstacle to the establishment of a permanent station. Our winter-house was snowed under in the course of two months, and to us this was only a source of satisfaction, as our quarters became all the warmer on this account but whether a whaling station would find a similar fate equally convenient is rather doubtful. Lastly, it must be said that, although in the bay itself huge schools of whales were a frequent occurrence, we did not receive the impression that there was any very great number of them out in Ross Sea. The species most commonly seen was the finner, after that the blue whale. As regards seals, they appeared in great quantities along the edge of the barrier, so long as the sea ice still lay there. After the break-up of the ice, the Bay of Wales was a favourite resort of theirs all through the summer. This was due to its offering them an easy access to the dry surface, where they could abandon themselves to their favourite occupation of basking in the sunshine. During our whole stay we must have killed some two hundred and fifty of them, by far the greater number of which were shot in the autumn, immediately after our arrival. This little inroad had no appreciable effect. The numerous survivors, who had been eye-witnesses of their companions' sudden death, did not seem to have the slightest idea that the Bay of Wales had become for the time being a somewhat unsafe place of residence. The name crab-eater may possibly evoke ideas of some ferocious creature. In that case it is misleading. The animal that bears it is, without question, the most amicable of the three species. It is of about the same size as our native seal, brisk and active in its movements, and is constantly exercising itself in high jumps from the water onto the ice-foot. Even on the ice it can work its way along so fast that it is all a man can do to keep up. Its skin is extraordinarily beautiful, grey with a sheen of silver and a small dark spots. One is often asked whether seal's flesh does not taste of train-oil. It seems to be a common assumption that it does so. This, however, is a mistake. The oil and the taste of it are only present in the layer of blubber, an inch thick, which covers the seal's body like a protective armour. The flesh itself contains no fat. On the other hand, it is extremely rich in blood, and its taste in consequence reminds one of black puddings. The flesh of the Weddell seal is very dark in colour. In the frying-pan it turns quite black. The flesh of the crab-eater is of about the same colour as beef, and to us, at any rate, its taste was equally good. We therefore always tried to get crab-eater when providing food for ourselves. We found the penguins as amusing as the seals were useful. So much has been written recently about these remarkable creatures, and they have been photographed and cinematographed so many times that everyone is acquainted with them. Nevertheless, anyone who sees a living penguin for the first time will always be attracted and interested, both by the dignified emperor penguin with his three feet of stature and by the bustling little Adelie. Not only in their upright walk, but also in their manners and antics, these birds remind one strikingly of human beings. It has been remarked that an emperor is the very image of an old gentleman in evening dress, and the resemblance is indeed very noticeable. It becomes still more so when the emperor, as is always his habit, 
approaches the stranger with a series of ceremonious bows, such as their good breeding. When this ceremony is over, the penguin will usually come quite close. He is entirely unsuspecting and is not frightened, even if one goes slowly towards him. On the other hand, if one approaches rapidly or touches him, he is afraid and immediately takes to flight. It sometimes happens, though, that he shows fight, and then it is wiser to keep out of range of his flippers, for in these he has a very powerful weapon, which might easily break a man's arm. If you wish to attack him, it is better to do so from behind. Both flippers must be seized firmly at the same time and bent backwards along his back. Then the fight is over. The little Adelie is always comic. On meeting a flock of these little busybodies, the most ill-humoured observer is forced to burst into laughter. During the first weeks of our stay in the Bay of Wales, while we were still unloading stores, it was always a welcome distraction to see a flock of Adelie penguins, to the number of a dozen or so, suddenly jump out of the water, as though at a word of command, and then sit still for some moments, stiff with astonishment at the extraordinary things they saw. When they had recovered from the first surprise, they generally dived into the sea again, but their intense curiosity soon drove them back to look at us more closely. In contradistinction to their calm and self-controlled relative, the emperor penguin, these active little creatures have an extremely fiery temperament, which makes them fly into a passion at the slightest interference with their affairs, and this, of course, only makes them still more amusing. The penguins are birds of passage. They spend the winter on the various small groups of islands that are scattered about the southern ocean. On the arrival of spring they betake themselves to Antarctica, where they have their regular rookeries in places where there is bare ground. They have a pronounced taste for roaming, and as soon as the chicks are grown they set out, young and old together, on their travels. It was only as tourists that the penguins visited Framheim and its environs, for there was, of course, no bare land in our neighbourhood that might offer them a place of residence. For this reason we really saw comparatively little of them. An emperor was a very rare visitor, but the few occasions on which we met these peculiar bird people of Antarctica will remain among the most delightful memories of our stay in the Bay of Wales. End of section 32, volume 2, chapter 15, The Eastern Sledge Journey by Lieutenant K. Priestred.